0: Good to see you all here this morning, though I can't see you, but it's nice to be in unity with you all here this morning. I'm aware that some of you probably are watching this uh, at a later time, and that's wonderful. Wherever you are, whenever you are, glad to have you joining us. If it's at all possible—let me just say this. So by the way, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here and a teaching pastor at Woodland. Uh, But if it's at all possible— I'd like to ask you to try to uh, come in at the 10 o'clock time and join us at this 10 o'clock time. Uh, we can't be together in time or in space, but we can be together in time. And there's a unity to that and there's a reality to that right now. We're, we're experiencing this all together and there's a solidarity in that. And, and so if it's possible for you to join us at that time, I, I'd encourage you to do that. Though, as I said, don't feel guilty or anything like that uh, if you watch it some other time. The other thing is that <clears throat> we will be opening sooner or later. <clears throat> and depending on how things go. And uh, so why not get in the habit? Get back in the habit of this Sunday morning because you're going to want to get out of practice on that one. Um, I should say uh, happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Do you remember it was Valentine's Day? Uh, happy Valentine's Day. I love you. Uh, I forgot of all about it to so my wife invited me this morning. Mr. Romantic here. But <clears throat> usually in the past I've written things on the mirror. I just totally forgot about it. Zoned out. But uh, it's COVID season, so that's my excuse for everything. Uh. Um, and uh, this morning, on the way driving here to church, it was 14 below, and a 33 below wind chill. Uh, so you Minnesotans, are we like it this way. But man, it's cold. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, It's been like a week and a half where it's just been nasty, nasty, nasty. Uh, but. Uh, we're tough up here in Minnesota, so if you are down there in the southern land and it's all warm where you are and you're probably on a beach and enjoying everything, well, you, you disgust me. That's what happened. <laughs> no fair! All right. Sometimes reality is stranger than fiction. Have you found that to be the case? So I was, uh, in, when I was in grad school, there's this, uh, I became an interim pastor at this church, Assembly of God church, and uh, uh, shortly after beginning there, didn't know much about anything, but uh, I was closing out a service. I used to actually lead worship, if you can believe that. Um, and and uh, I, I was closing out the service, giving, getting ready to give a benediction or final prayer or whatever. And a person stands up to prophesy. And this is an Assembly of God church. And those of you who know something about you know, Pentecostalism, you know that at least in a lot of churches, Um, that's allowed. Whoever feels so led, they can stand up and and give a prophecy. One of the reasons why we don't do that in our weekend services here at Woodland's Church, in part is because of the experiences like the one I'm going to share with you right now. Well, it turns out there's a guy who came to this church once in a while. I'll call him Eric. And uh, Eric was uh, eccentric, but generally a real nice guy, I'm told, and real friendly. As long as he took his meds. As long as he took his meds. But uh, once in a while, apparently Eric would would feel uh, like he was, like God told him not to take his meds. Or he would feel like he's being a weak Christian for taking meds. If he really had faith, he wouldn't have to take these meds. He would get in that kind of self-talk, and so he'd stop taking his meds. And when he stopped taking his meds, he floated out into a different universe. So... But I didn't know any of this at this point. I don't know. This guy just stands up. He only came to church once in a while. So he stands up and he's going to give a prophecy and he says, in this kind of loud King James version sort of voice, um, he says, I am the fourth person of the Trinity. The math there is a little funky. So I was already a little suspect. Maybe this isn't a genuine prophecy. I don't know. I'm the fourth person of the Trinity. And I caught the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspiring against me. And so I fired them. You're fired! <laughs> uh, so at that point, I'm like, okay. they kind of signal the ushers to come and take care of this. And the ushers come and try to escort him out. Everyone's kind of, it's a very awkward moment, as you can imagine. And as he's being ushered out of the auditorium, he says, uh, okay. He's really mad now. I'm going to, in seven days, send a flood on the entire earth because this church is doing communion wrong. I don't know what doing communion wrong meant or what was, what was the right way to do communion, but apparently it makes God very irate when you don't do communion just right because he's going to destroy the whole church because, the whole world because this one church is doing it wrong. Anyways, so they take uh, Eric out in, into the pastor's office, and, and I close up the service. It's kind of awkward, and I say a prayer about him. Clearly there's something going on there, and, and so on. So the service is done, and I go to the pastor's office to deal with this issue— Eric is there, and, and some of our deacons were there. And we tried to, you know, ask him, do you have any family or friends that, that we could call? Uh, and he wouldn't—either he, he didn't have any, or he wouldn't cooperate with us. Um, we offered to take him down to the hospital and get an evaluation, uh, and he wouldn't cooperate with us. We finally had to call the police. So these two officers show up. One just kind of stays in the background, and the other one is the, kind of the leader. And uh, they, this officer comes up to me and says, okay, so who's the person that you, I understand that there's a, 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 a mental disorder here and that you need some help with this or whatever. I said, yes, to this person, Eric here. And um, uh, the officer says, well, why do you want to, why do you think he needs to be committed? Because that's a pretty significant thing. And I said, well, uh, he thinks he's God. And the officer just sort of pondered for a second and he says, well, can you prove him wrong? And I was like, well, he said he was God. And the officer says, well, how do you know he's not telling the truth? I thought he was joking with me at first, but he was, I, so far as I could, tell, dead serious. So I said, okay, well, also he said he was the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, that's kind of odd. And he says that, that he caught the fire, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit conspiring against him. And so he fired them. Uh, that's pretty out there. And then he says he's going to flood the earth, even though Genesis 9 says that God will never flood the earth again. So that's why I think he has got a mental issue here. I'm thinking he didn't take his meds this morning. I'm not a, I'm not a shrink. I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I'm thinking he didn't take his meds. But the officer, he ponders a little bit and he goes, well, you know, that's, that, there's a lot of interpretation in that. And I don't know what he meant by that. I'm like, What is there to interpret? He goes, there's a lot of inter- I need something more empirical. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. I wanted to say to the officer, did you take your meds this morning? Because right now, you're sounding kind of crazy. Uh, so you need something more empirical, verifiable. So I came up with a real quick uh, experiment. Uh, how to how, how uh, prove that someone's not God? If you ever uh, meet someone who thinks they're God, you might want to try this out on them. So I, I, I said, so Eric, uh, uh, God knows everything, right? He's God's omniscient. And Eric goes, Of course. And you're God now. You've fired the Father, the Holy Spirit, so you're the only one on that throne right now. So if you're God, you know everything. And Eric says, of course. So I said, well, okay, Eric, then if I go out, if this nice officer here who didn't take his meds this morning and I go into the auditorium and I tell him a word real quietly into his ear, uh, you'll know what that word is because you know everything, right? Because you're God. And Eric paused for a second, and then he finally goes, I should be able to do that. (laughs) So it's like, okay, game on. So we walk down the hall, walk in this auditorium, this officer and I. It's a really awkward moment, to be honest with you. Like, what do you talk about on the way to going to the auditorium to say a secret word to prove someone's not God? It's a rather awkward situation, but we do it. We get in the auditorium, and he looks at me. What's the word? And I said, the secret word for the day is horse, horse. He goes, okay. So we walked back to the pastor's office. I said, okay, Eric, what did I say to the officer? What word did I say? And he goes, ark. Total confidence, ark. Because he was thinking about the flood, no doubt. I said, nope, wrong. Disqualified. So the officer says, okay, Eric, let's go down to the hospital. That proved it to the officer. Hallelujah. Uh, I was wondering what else would it take? Uh, proved to me that you can't walk on water. I don't know what he was going to say. but uh, So the officer then begins to take Eric away, and Eric cooperates with him. He was, at that point, really nice. Uh, although when he's being ushered out, as he's going down the hall, I hear him saying to the officer, the devil deceived me, that's why I didn't get it right. And then as they're going out the door, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. So the good news is that he got down to the hospital and got evaluated. He got meds, and, and, and he got, it all worked out. Uh, No worse for the wear, other than that we had kind of an embarrassing service. Uh, Here's the thing. I I, I share all that, not not to make light of mental illness, because mental illness is a very serious thing. It can be devastating to a life. It can be even dangerous at times. Uh, People who are afflicted with this can suffer terribly. And I want to say that if you you have any kind of affliction like that, there is absolutely no shame in taking medication for it. Really, there's no shame in that. I don't know where we got that stigma from, but— it's no different than taking Pepto-Bismol when your stomach's upset. It's just that the brain's a lot more complicated, but it's the same same principle. You, both they, are, they depend on chemical balances. If chemical balances get out of whack, well, then you get out of whack. So don't feel bad about that. Take take your medication. But I share this to illustrate this principle, and it's, it's this: when when somebody is having a psychotic breakdown or has a mental disorder, whether it's bipolar or it's schizophrenia or whatever, it's usually pretty obvious. It's usually pretty obvious. I mean, the fact that someone claims to be God uh, is it already puts them in the. We tend to categorize that as pretty crazy. But there's other things that go along with that. If you've known people who have mental disorders, whatever, it's, it's, it's obvious. Here's the thing, and this is what's really curious about Jesus, is that Jesus says things that are, by normal human standards, absolutely crazy, crazy stuff. See this in a moment. It's this says crazy stuff. But what's really interesting, I mean, judging just from what he says, you'd think that he is, he didn't take his meds, or he needs to be on meds. You'd think there's something cuckoo about him. But there's nothing else in his life that suggests that he is cuckoo, that he's crazy. In fact, the rest of his life is exemplar. And that creates this dilemma. And this is the title of the message this morning. Uh, do we think that Jesus was crazy, or do we think he was telling the truth? It comes down to that. Uh, if he's telling the truth, then he's the Lord God Almighty. If he's crazy, well then, we just dismiss him as crazy. Uh, so the question is, is he, is he the rock of ages or is he off his rocker? Yes, I think that's one of the cleverest titles I've ever come up with. So I'm going to say it again. Was he, was he the rock of ages or was he off his rocker? All right. So now let's turn to the passage that we've been hovering on here for some time. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse eight, uh, verses 17 through 20. A real foundational text, which is why we're taking our good old time on this. Uh, this is the fourth week we've spent hovering on this, and we'll go one more week next week. So here's what it says. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's 33 below zero, and I still find a way to sweat. You figure that one out. How is it? It's a, it's a sauna in here, Mary. Why, what are you trying to heat up so much for? No, all right. So I've got to dull my shiny head. Here's what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh Uh-uh. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. All right. Foundational text. So we uh, uh, started this series that we have here uh, on law and, and, and love. Um, we started this by Dan teaching out of this passage about the need to balance grace uh, with, 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 with discipline. Those two are complementary, not adversarial. Uh, and then we talked about how love fulfills the whole law. A, a foundational text, a message for us, because this is what we're all about, a community that's learning to love together. Love fulfills everything that is expected of us. Do the law, do, 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 do love, get, get that bullseye, and everything you need to get down will be get, gotten down. But if we don't hit the bullseye of, of living in Christ like self-sacrificial love, then it doesn't matter what else we accomplish, it's altogether worthless from a kingdom point of view. And then last week we talked about what this passage says about Jesus' view of Scripture. That he, he believes all Scripture is divinely inspired. It's a divinely inspired story of God. Um, and if that was Jesus' attitude and we call him Lord, then that should be our attitude towards Scripture. And we talked about what that does mean and what that does not mean. If you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to, to get that. Uh, this morning I want to talk about what this passage says about Jesus, about his view of himself. And then next week we'll talk about uh, what this passage says about how we're to interpret the Bible, all right? In this passage here, Jesus is saying— that he hasn't come to abolish the law, which is itself a kind of a weird thing for someone to say, like, well, who do you think you are that you could abolish the law? I mean, that already seems like it's kind of arrogant. Don't think I've come to abolish the Bible. It's like, well, why? you wouldn't have that authority if you wanted to. But Jesus claims to have that authority. He goes, but I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. He says he is the fulfillment of all Scripture. This divinely inspired story of God was inspired to, for the purpose of being fulfilled in him, culminated in him, brought to completion in him. This Jesus sees himself as the subject matter of all Scripture. It's just, it's really quite amazing. And he sees himself, as we'll see next week, as the key to interpreting all Scripture. So the question is, who does this guy think he is? I think sometimes we Christians get used to Jesus talking like this, so we don't notice how crazy it sounds on a normal basis. But what would you think of me if I got up here this morning and I, and I said, uh, hey, the topic this morning for this morning's sermon is uh, me. Because you see, really, if you, once you get the hang of interpreting the Bible the right way, you'll see it's, it's all about me on the subject matter of, of Scripture. All, the Bible is fulfilled in me, completed in me. I didn't come to abolish the Bible. I've come to fulfill it. It finds its fulfillment in me. You think, okay, Pastor Greg has lost his marbles. One floor of the cuckoo's nest. He's, he's a wackadoo. Loco and la You think I didn't take my meds this morning. That's what you think. But see, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And what's remarkable is that this isn't a one-off thing. He says this kind of thing a lot. I'll give you one more example. John chapter 5. we Look at verse 40. Uh, whatever it is, verse 39, 30, whatever it is. He says, you search the scriptures, starting with verse 39. Because in them you think you have life, eternal life. But it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You don't know the scripture, but, but you don't realize that the scripture is supposed to point, bring you to life. You're right about that. But I'm the life that scripture is supposed to point to. And then he says, but yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Or if you do, But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe anything I have to say? So here Jesus is saying, you guys are really good on the Bible. You study the Bible. You're diligent on the Bible. And you're looking for, for eternal life in the Bible. But see, the, the the only way to find eternal life in the Bible, what you need to understand, Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees, is uh, the, the way the Bible has life is by bringing us into a relationship with Christ. And so Jesus is saying that, if, if, if your reading of the Bible doesn't result in you coming into a relationship with me, you're reading the Bible in a lifeless way, in a worthless way. The Bible's not doing what the Bible is supposed to do. You claim to believe in Moses and you obey the law meticulously, and yet Moses wrote about me. Okay, all Scripture testifies about me, and the point of the whole thing is for you to come and have a relationship with me. That sounds pretty crazy, especially if you put it in a first century Jewish context. The whole point of the Bible is to bring you into a relationship with me that you might have eternal life. It sounds crazy, but the odd thing is that as crazy as it sounds, there's nothing else in Jesus' life that looks at all crazy. It looks pretty—it looks very sane. And actually, Jesus said even crazier things than this. And I don't have time to get into all this, but here's a small sampling. Um, You have in John 14, Jesus says, uh, If you see me, you see the Father. God the Father, why then do you ask, show us God the Father? Um, I mean, I just think what would happen. If I said that to you, hey, you guys, uh, you know, you th- let's do some theologizing here, okay? Uh, if you see me, you see God. So, you know, don't go looking anywhere else to find God. It's right right here. I'm, I'm, I'm God. You think I'd lost my marvels. Jesus says stuff like that. He says at one point, uh, he's come, said, all may honor the Son, referring to himself, just as you honor the Father. God the Father, show me some respect. Just give me the kind of respect that you'd give uh, to God, for example. That sounds crazy. He says he's come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent me. The rest of us are just born, but Jesus says he's come down from heaven. What's up with that? One of my favorites is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, when Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and to whoever the Son wants to reveal him. Now Think about the audacity of that statement. No one knows God except moi. Now, he's got to be using a little hyperbole here, which Jesus does a lot of, uh, making an extreme statement for emphasis because he clearly believes the Old Testament's divinely inspired, so they knew something about God in the Old Testament. If you took it literally, you'd have to say that no one in the Old Testament knew God at all. No one in the world today knows God at all except for Jesus Christ. I don't think he wanted to go that far, but he is saying in the most emphatic way imaginable that, uh, um, that, that, that it's as though no one knows God except for— once you get the revelation that he brings about God, every other, re- other revelation is rendered inconsequential because it's as though they didn't know anything. Uh, the, the, the audacity of the claim is absolutely astounding. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I possess all the power in the universe. He's the all-time great what do they call them, Avengers and the Marvel series? series? Yeah, he's the all authority of the universe. He's he's more powerful than Hulk. He says things like, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Now, every Jew knows that that's the wrong way to talk. You're supposed to say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for Yahweh's sake or blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake or something like that. But no one says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Who do you think you are? God or something? If you want to, uh, you know, get a, a good resource on kind of finding out how Jesus viewed himself and how the rest of the New Testament views Jesus, there's a book by Robert Bowman and Ed Komozwinski, something like that, called Putting Jesus in His Place. And it just kind of brings all this evidence together. I encourage you to check that out. Um, that sounds absolutely crazy. Now here's the thing. Maybe you're thinking, well, look, it sounds crazy to us. Because we know about psychological disorders and psychiatric stuff and modern science. and It sounds crazy to us, but you know, in the first century, the people were more gullible back then and they weren't as critical back then. And, and they didn't know science the way we do. So, so maybe it's shocking to us, but it would have been shocking to them. Well, the first thing I'd say is that the idea that somehow modern people are more advanced than people in the ancient world. We are obviously more advanced in terms of science and that kind of stuff. But if you think that you're smarter than ancient people, you better think again. Because go back and study like the ancient world where they didn't have anything to rely on to remember things other than their memory. Imagine that. They actually had to use their memory. I fear that we're losing—I know I'm losing my memory. I—, I, I uh, I've been going to a new physical therapist, and so I take a a direction that I get on my GPS. And uh, I I, I take the GPS every time. Why bother to think when you have a GPS. Well, then one time my GPS stops working, and I don't know how to get there. I've been there four times, but I'm not paying attention because I don't have to. I think our memories are drooling out of our ears. Back then, we have accounts of of students of the Bible who would memorize the entire Torah. They had it in memory. It was just, uh, okay, so we're not— Our brains are not smarter than ancient people. And I don't think that we're less gullible than ancient people. There's actually been studies done on that that have shown that, if anything, modern people are more gullible than ancient people. And in light of all the conspiracy theories that people are buying into these days, you'd have a hard time disagreeing with that. But the most important consideration is this. For for ancient monotheistic Jews uh, in Palestine, hearing what Jesus had to say, would be more shocking to them than it is to us. I mean, we think it's crazy today. But see, back then, they didn't think it was just crazy. They thought it was blasphemous to blur the lines between humanity and Yahweh. Uh, Precisely because all the pagans around them, they worshiped human gods, right? They just kind of anthropomorphic gods. Precisely because they blurred the lines between deity and humanity, the Jews doubled down in the first century against ever blurring the lines between deity and humanity. But here comes Jesus and he's blurring the lines all over the, point, all over the place to the point where he's identifying himself with deity. If you've seen me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one and things like that. So this stuff is not just crazy. It is, is blasphemous in the first century Jewish worldview. And that's the kind of thing that, that can get you killed. In fact, that's the kind of thing that, did, that got Jesus killed. You see this in the Gospels. Uh, both uh, Matthew and John talk about a, an episode where Jesus was out teaching and you know, doing his ministry. And his mother and, and his brother James and some other relatives, they came to the conclusion, they heard what Jesus was saying, the claims he was making about himself, and they thought he, he, he was beside himself. They thought he'd lost it. So they went out to get him, to take him home, because they were afraid that he's going to bring harm upon himself. Now that raises several questions that are kind of interesting. One is, how is it that Mary and James uh, could have not believed during Jesus' lifetime, during his ministry, that he was the Son of God? How is that possible? That's an interesting question. I think there's an answer to it, though I don't have time to get into it right now. I'll just say that Mary got that revelation that Jesus was the Son of God 30-some years earlier, and that's a long time. And a mother's love, when you see your son's in danger, takes over, and so on and so on. But the, the more interesting question is, How is it that Mary and James, who didn't believe in Jesus during his lifetime, did believe in Jesus after his lifetime? What happened? We find James and Mary are part of the uh, the band of original disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. How did that happen? One might consider the resurrection as a possibility. Uh, Something happened that convinced them that Jesus was not crazy, but that he was telling the truth. So if Jesus was crazy, here's the big question you gotta ask. How is it that 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 a this person who's off his rocker was able to convince his own brother and his mother and his closest peers that he was in fact telling the truth when he says, if you see me, you see the father, I and the father are one, and and and, and all those kind of crazy things. How does that happen? Because usually people who are, are, are having a mental breakdown, psychotic episode, or whatever, um, they're usually not that convincing. <laughs> they, they don't persuade very many people that they're telling the truth. Jesus here convinced these people who are most close to him, who would know him best, that he was, that he was in fact, the Son of God, the embodiment of Yahweh. Uh, his, his closest peers tell—they write the story about him, and they say he had the reputation of being sinless, without blame. How many people with mental disorders leave that reputation behind? How many human beings in general leave that reputation behind? And yet Jesus left the impression upon his people who were closest to him that he was holy, that he was sinless. Uh, He has this uh, reputation of, uh, they they report whenever he taught, he taught with this incredible divine authority. Uh, Exceptional. People just sensed it. He had this authority. Crazy people usually don't have that kind of authority, but Jesus did. And they talk about how Jesus, he was the perfect embodiment of love. Crazy people aren't usually identified as the embodiment of love, but Jesus was identified by the people who would know him best, who could have said otherwise, but they see him as the perfect embodiment of love and of kindness uh, and, and, and of peace as reaching out to those who are hurting. Um, he attracted the worst of sinners. Usually uh, people who have got or megalomaniacs who think that they're God or that the sin of God's purpose or whatever, they're not usually known for their ability to attract hurting people and to minister to hurting people. But Jesus did. He attracted prostitutes and tax collectors and all the rest. Uh, what's up with that? He just doesn't fit the bill of a person who is having a mental breakdown. Uh, he, he, his teachings have throughout history by Christians and non-Christians alike. But he hailed it as being among the most insightful teachings in world history, if not the most insightful teachings in world history. But crazy people usually aren't known as these wise, wonderful teachers. But Jesus is. He just doesn't fit the bill. Yeah, he sounds crazy when he talks. When he makes these claims, he sounds crazy. But nothing else about his life seems crazy at all. It rather seems absolutely exemplar. But these disciples tell us what convinced them that he was telling the truth against all of their presuppositions. Everything in their culture and everything in their religion told them that God and humanity never fuse. Here comes Jesus and he's saying God and humanity have fused in him. He is the fusion of God and humanity. And what could convince them against all of their culture and all the religion that he was telling the truth? Well, Jesus went around and, and healed people uh, who were afflicted by diseases, and he delivered people who were afflicted by demons. But most importantly, when he, he, he gives his life out of love for his enemies, and on the third day he rises from the dead. Now see, if all that is true, I can begin to understand how these disciples would come to the conclusion that Jesus was telling them the truth, even though they'd be strongly psychological, psychologically conditioned and culturally conditioned not to ever believe such a thing. But see, if, if that actually happened, now we can understand how the disciples came to the belief that they have that Jesus wasn't crazy, he was telling the truth. If that didn't happen, if he's not telling the truth, well then, what explains what explains their completely countercultural opinion about Jesus? What, what, what accounts for their faith in him? Interesting historical question. Now, there's one other option you might, you might have. Uh, you might say, well, look, maybe Jesus was just kind of this ordinary guy, maybe a great teacher, um, uh, and maybe he did some faith healings here and there. But uh, the story, you know, gets passed on. And, and it grows as it gets passed on. The old telephone game. The fish got bigger and bigger and bigger every time he told the story. And so after a period of time, this, this carpenter, who was a great teacher and maybe a faith healer, he, he grows in stature to become the Lord God himself. And so he's worshiped and prayed to and treated as God and ascribed divine activities and all the rest. You can read all about that in Putting Jesus in His Place. The New Testament over and over again is, depicts him as being the creator come to earth. So you can say it's a result of legendary development. I don't have time to get into the refutation of, of that. I, I'll just say this that um, all you've done in this theory is you take the craziness, the crazy sounding Jesus and you take it out of Jesus, and you now ascribe it to his disciples. His disciples, against everything that their culture told them and their religion told them was true, they all of a sudden come up with this belief and then retroactively put it on Jesus. That's the theory. Jesus never claimed to be God, but later followers, they, they, they project that onto Jesus, and so they make him out to be this, because that's where their faith was. Well, what explains their belief? You just kicked the can down the road. Plus, there's a lot of other things that are troubling about the legendary hypothesis. I mean... I think one of the strongest refutations of the whole thing is that James, the brother of Jesus, is among the band of people that are in the crowd uh, that, are, that are followers of Jesus, that worship him as God, okay? Uh, if this is the result of a legendary development, J- James would never let that happen. How, how did James convert if this was the result of some kind of legendary development? Anyways, uh, we're going to be having a panel discussion here and taking Q&A, some questions. And by the way, be sending in your questions. Now's the time to do it. Put the number on the board. There you go. Six five one three two one thirty thirty. That's six five one three two one thirty thirty. Send them in. Uh, but Paul Eddy will be joining me, and he and I have written two books on this topic. Uh, one's called The Jesus Legend, and that's the more academic version of it. Uh, and the other one's called Jesus, Lord or Legend, and that's the more popular version of it. And the whole thing's designed to refute the legendary hypothesis. So you can check that out. And so I'm hoping somebody asks me more questions, asks us questions about the Jesus legend or about how this legendary theory. So we can bring more out of it. Okay, so. Bring in the questions. All right. All this brings us to this point where, you know, Jesus at one point says to his disciples, who do—he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, well, you know, some think you're Elijah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist or whatever. Theories, theories, speculations, whatever. Jesus says, no, but who do you say that I am? He makes it personal. And this is a question I think all of us have to ask. Jesus was such an unusual, extraordinary figure in history that his— His being demands an explanation that we've all got got to address this. This guy who sounds crazy but gives us every reason to believe that he's telling the truth. Who do you think he is? And the choice comes down to do you think he's telling the truth or do you think he's crazy? Um, The one option that the Gospels don't give us is the one that most people try to take. So far as I I can see. A lot of folks, they don't want to sell out to Jesus and say, Oh, he's Lord of my life and actually live by his teachings and stuff. They they don't want to go that extreme. That's fanatical. But they also don't want to say he's crazy because he clearly is not crazy as long as you don't listen to what he says. Uh, So so they come up with this idea that Jesus is is just a great human being. He's just the best guy, swellest guy on the planet. Maybe he's anointed by God. Maybe he's even an ascended master, but he's human nonetheless. A lot of folks have this view. No, Jesus is still really popular in all opinion polls. Christians aren't, but Jesus is. And so, so they, you know, they don't want to say he's a fruitcake. No, he's, he's, he's a good moral teacher. But see, the Gospels don't give this an option. I, there's, if you get honest with the, with the evidence, if you get honest with that, see, good teachers don't go around saying things like, I've come down from heaven. The good, good moral teachers, wise human beings that are only human beings, don't go you know, saying, if you've seen me, you see the Father. Or no one knows God except for me and whoever I want to reveal God to. They don't talk like that. But Jesus does. Jesus does. You've got to make a choice. Do you think he's crazy or do you think that he is, in fact, telling the truth? And see, if he's telling the truth, this is just, it changes everything. If he's telling the truth, if he was who he claimed to be, then then... Uh, that is the all-time ga- game changer because uh, it means God is real and it means that God looks like Jesus. Jesus is the, the human expression of God's character. It means that God is this perfect love. Uh, we were created by a being, who, a supreme being who is, is, is perfect love. It means that right now, if Jesus is telling the truth uh, that, and his death was for you and for me, that means that we are right now loved more profoundly than we could ever fathom. Right now you are surrounded by the love of God, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. God's love burns towards you. He's passionate towards you. He's pursuing you. As he has been pursuing every human being throughout history. If Jesus is real, well, it means that this life isn't just a futile nonsense cosmic joke. It means that our life has a purpose. It's got a direction. It means that history's going somewhere. It means that however gloomy things may appear, your future is looking very bright if you'll just... Get on board with this team. Uh, Become a follower of Jesus because his promise is that that his kingdom will come in fullness and then the purpose for the world, all of creation will be completed in him. And then God's character and God's love and God's joy and peace will define every square inch of the cosmos. However gloomy the future may look for you, and maybe it does look really gloomy. You just found out you got cancer. Maybe, whatever. Uh, Your future is actually looking very bright. If you'll just accept this truth, it changes everything. And so if you're watching this this morning and, and you're not yet a surrendered follower of Jesus, maybe you're, you know, you're kind of there but not quite, uh, or maybe you're skeptical of the whole thing, I encourage you just to do this. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you see this truth, submit to it. Uh, because spiritual clarity isn't something you can always count on. Your heart— our seeing is always conditioned by the, the, the condition of our heart. Uh, we see what our heart allows us to see. And if your heart is allowing you to see the truth of this, then surrender to it and, and begin to walk in this. But if you're not there yet, that's okay. We're not into pressured sales around here. Uh, I just encourage you to very honestly look at the evidence. Um, you can check out these books that Paul and I wrote for starters. The Jesus Legend or or Jesus Lord or Legend. Uh, or some folks have found Letters from a Skeptic to be very helpful. But, but look into that. And and your choices. Do you think this guy was crazy off his rocker? Or do you think he was, in fact, the, the rock of ages? Uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Uh, and I encourage you to, to uh, yeah, look into that. And when you're ready, then, then it's just a matter of acknowledging the Jesus lordship, submitting to Jesus lordship, and then join the community of those who are learning how to, to walk in the ways of Jesus. Which means join the community of those who are learning to love together. Loving the way that Jesus loves. Uh, start to get involved and you start to grow in this. All right. Now, at at this point, I had planned on using the last eight or nine minutes of this message to um, lay the foundation for next week's message, which was—it's going to be about how to interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus and the difference that that makes. Really important topic, and I hope that you tuned in next week to hear it. But as I got to this point in my message, there was a sort of a check in my spirit. And um, it was just like, slow down. Uh, This is a foundation— if a foundation laying time. And that's what I felt about this whole series. Uh, it's, it's so foundational. We're just like laying the absolute bedrock foundation here. And it, it felt like the Spirit was saying, don't move on to talk about how Jesus, how, how, you know, how Jesus makes, brings about a different interpretation of the Bible until you first talk about how Jesus brings about a different interpretation of everything. Or what is to say, don't move on until you talk about what it means to submit to Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? And that seems such a basic question, but it's so important. I bet a lot of folks, as I've been talking about, is Jesus crazy or is he, is, is he telling the truth? You've been thinking, well, that's really good for, the, for non-believers, for skeptics, for people on the fence, for those people. Uh, you're a believer. You already checked the box on that one, right? I believe in Jesus. Um, so you've been thinking, it's about, this is for other people. But I submit to you right now that this is actually for all of us. Because see, here's the thing. It's one thing, it's one thing to to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, it's another thing to live it out. A, 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 a world of difference? You, you can check off the box that you acknowledge Jesus as Lord. You, you know, I, I did that back in June 29th, 1974. Glory. But uh actually living on the Lordship of Jesus is not something you can check off. You, you don't do it once and then coast. No, it's something we do. Moment by moment by moment. So it's like this. I think a lot of us, a lot of Christians, we always define becoming a Christian as pledging your life to Jesus. You surrender your life to Jesus. You're going to pledge your life to Jesus. But see, what often happens, I believe, is that we confuse our pledge of life to Jesus with the life that we pledge to Jesus. We confuse our pledge of life to Jesus with the life that we pledge to Jesus. When we, we pledge our life to Jesus, that's just a pledge. That, that's, that, that's, that's not really the, the, important, the, the important point. It's not, did you make that pledge? The real question is, is, are you living that pledge out moment by moment? Because, see, the life that we pledge to Christ is the life that we live moment by moment. Our life is nothing but a series of present moments strung together. That's the actual life. So our pledge of life, that's an abstract thing. That's a theoretical thing. That's something we promise we're going to do. We fulfill that promise when we actually submit each moment to Christ as Lord. And we do that by structuring our life according to his teachings and patterning our life according to his pattern and things like that. But there's a dimension here where we, we are, are to remain submitted to him moment by moment. I, we offer you up this moment, and we offer you up this moment. Don't confuse your pledge of life for Christ with the life that you pledged to Christ. Yeah, I pledged, the, I pledged my life to Christ 40-some years ago. Um, but now the important question is, is, am I living this out now? Am I, in this moment, surrendered to Christ as Lord? Now, what this involves is, is, is something like this. Uh, for me to surrender this moment to Christ, I have to be aware of Christ. I have to be aware that I'm always in the presence of God. I'm always in, in him we live and move and have our being. To surrender each moment to Christ is simply to be aware of that fact. I am, at every moment, surrounded by the perfect love of God. Um, so, so offering your actual life to Christ moment by moment it requires a different mindset than the, than the typical mindset out there. Uh, you know, Paul distinguishes between having a natural mind and having the mind of the Spirit. The natural mind is simply the mindset of a natural person. Uh, what you see is what you get. You just live as though life was here and now. The physical world thing is, you may believe a lot of other stuff, but the way you actually live moment by moment, your consciousness is all on this earth. It, it doesn't enter into the heavenly realm at all. That's the natural mindset. And see, it's very easy to pledge your life to Christ and yet live with a natural mindset. You pledge your life to Christ, but 99.9% of the life that you actually live, moment by moment, excludes him. He's not on the radar screen. He, he, part of your, you may think about him in the morning, at night, maybe once in a while, or in the weekends, but, but on the whole, you'll have a natural mindset. Whereas Paul is saying, cultivate a mindset of the Spirit, where the goal is to integrate every moment with our awareness of God's presence, with, 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 with our awareness of the kingdom of God, is to make each, each moment of our life a dome over which God is king. So to be aware of God's presence and then just yielded to God's presence. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 12, verse 2, when he says, uh, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's the natural mindset. Thinking the way everyone else thinks, doing what everyone else does. Don't be conformed to that pattern. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Living in the kingdom requires a different mindset where we're trying to integrate the reign of God into every present moment. The goal of the whole thing is to completely tear down the walls that separate the sacred from the secular so that everything becomes sacred. And so as you go about your life and everyday things, if you're aware of God's presence and yielded to God's presence, everything becomes kind of a sacrament— your life becomes a sacrament. I've read authors like Brother Lawrence and and Frank Laubach and others who, it seems that they got to the point where that was their natural mindset. And they claim that anyone can get there just by cultivating this kind of mindset so that when they wake up in the morning, they're aware of God. and, and, And now their awareness of God's love becomes the context in which everything in their life gets experienced. It's like... The the, the reign of God, the love of God frames their whole whole experience of reality. I'm not there yet. And I've been practicing this for over 30-some years. I wrote a book on this, by the way. It's called Present Perfect. Um, And I just will say that it's what I aspire to be, but I don't think I'm going to get there before my life comes to an end. I think I'm just a lot more carnal than Brother Lawrence or Frank Laubach. But that doesn't matter. This isn't a competition. Uh, What matters is we start right now, in this moment. Are we surrendered to Christ right now? Are we yielded to Christ right now? And um, uh, are we cultivating the mindset of the spirit right now? now? What I found is this. I'm going to end with just a few tips, and then Paul's going to come up here, and we're going to yap a little bit and answer your questions. I want to put up the number one last time? Three, two, one. Thirty, thirty. Um, but I, here's a little tip. I find that it, it's very helpful to associate the practicing of, of, of the. It's called practicing the presence of God, being aware of God's presence to associate that with activities that, you, that require a little thought. Start there. Now, the goal is to have this mindset, whatever you're doing, however complex the thing might, might be, to still keep an awareness of God's presence and be yielded to God's presence. But start with something concrete. Like I find when I'm driving, often that will be, at least for the first part of a drive, and go on for however long I, I want. But I just try to re- remain aware of God's presence while I'm driving someplace. Just, just, I'm, I'm driving in, you know, in him we live and move our have, have our being. In him we drive and have our being. And so I want to remain aware of that. Or sometimes if you're mowing the lawn uh, or doing the dishes or taking a dog out for a walk, any kind of mindless activity like that, just turn it into a, a, a spiritual discipline and see how, how how long you can hold into your awareness uh, the truth that you are surrounded by God's love at every moment and be yielded to, to God's love every, every moment. Uh, you might find sometimes as you're doing that, see, one advantage is that now, if you're aware of God's presence, now God has your attention. So if there's something to be done in the kingdom, he, he can nudge you in that direction to do it. And so you might find as you're practicing the presence of God, all of a sudden you feel a prompting to pray for this person or to agree with God that that person over there has unsurpassable worth or to go make friends with this person who clearly seems like they need friends. If you were in the natural mindset, you wouldn't notice those things. But if you have the mind of the Spirit, you'll, 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 you'll pick those up. Or sometimes, if, here's a good a discipline to have, is to just Sit. And be aware of God's presence for a minute, for five minutes, whatever. Just be aware of God's presence and that you're surrounded by God's love. And maybe you just want to like say over and over again, it's sort of a, a saying, in him we live and move and have our being. In him, in him I live and move and have my being. Right here and right now, I am in an ocean of God's love. And I yielded to that. And sometimes as you're just sitting there in the presence of God, and that's just an enjoyable thing, just enjoy it. And if you feel something great, if you don't, that's fine. Just be aware. That's, a, that's the goal. You're expanding your awareness, getting rid of that natural mindset, and moving into the spiritual mindset. Um, but sometimes as you're sitting there, you might find that a face comes before you. And just use this as an opportunity to bless that person. As you stay aware of God's presence, just bless that person. Or pray for this person. Or whoever pops up. Don't try to do anything. Just be aware and see what happens. And so uh, before we go into this Q&A time, I want to have the most unusual spiritual exercise uh, at the end of a sermon that Woodland Hills has ever had and possibly that, well, it's just going to be a little weird, but let's do it. Because I want to sit for one minute. And Mary, will you keep time? Because um, I forgot to bring my watch up here. For one minute, I want us to sit in the presence of God. So will you at this moment, set aside all other concerns, try to put aside all everything else to just think about one thing. You're in the presence of God's perfect love. And just rest in that. Just sit. And if something, if a, if a, if a face person pops into your mind, uh, be yielded to the Spirit and just bless that person. Uh, just agree with God that they were Jesus dying for. And if you feel like there's any need in their life, just give a little prayer there. But always be remaining aware that you're in the presence of God for one minute. Okay? Let's do it. Lord, bless this minute in your presence. Amen. I encourage you to do that on a regular basis. And turn your car rides into a spiritual discipline. Take, turn your dog walking into a spiritual discipline. As much as possible, integrate the reign of God into every conscious waking moment now. And with that, I turn it over to... What your name again? <laughs> <I don't laughs> okay, it's an inside me. joke. Uh, John, would you uh, introduce yeah. this topic that we're going to be talking about here?
1: Thank you, Greg. I am so, th- Paul. Thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you for being that buffer between <laughs> the, the doctor and I. Seriously, answering is our love language. <laughs> thank you all for sending in your questions. I'm confident we won't get to them all, but we do see them, we read them, and we may circle back to them in the future. So, thank you so much for doing that. We really do appreciate it. Um, Paul is here. We're excited about that. Greg's still here. Yep, yep. And so they have done a lot of work together on this very topic. They've written some books together, like Greg said. And so we just thought it'd be really helpful to you guys for them to be able to flesh some of this out a little bit more. So deep breaths. Are you ready? Do it. Okay. One of the questions... Stay awake to God's presence while we're doing this. We
0: have to illustrate what I just talked about. Okay. You're man aware.
1: (laughs) Okay. Now that we've got that instruction... We're ready to go one of the questions that we got in was actually someone sharing an experience that they had where they were trying to share jesus with someone and that person's response was to bring up um, other people in history i.e david koresh or jim jones who who had done similar things as jesus at least in their perspective as jesus had done and this person just didn't um, know how to respond because uh the person they were talking to said, you know, there's been a bit of other people in history who've had these big personalities and who have garnered a lot of followers. Um, So what is the difference? What's the big deal? (laughs) What makes Jesus so different?
2: No, yeah. Good question. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's no doubt that there's some similarities. Uh, Scholars for years have (coughs) drawn parallels between Jesus and certain figures in history. Um, they mentioned David Kresh and yes, Jim Jones. Jim okay. Jones. Yeah. What are some of these similarities? Um, Jesus was a charismatic leader, uh, a compelling speaker, th- there's no doubt. And I'm sure David Kresh was, and it seems Jim Jones was. Um, they, all three of those men, Jesus, James, and uh, and, and, and others, uh, I think of Apollonius. We, we wrote about Apollonius yep. in our book, a first century uh, person known as a healer, and some even worshipped him as God. Um, Sabbatai Sevi is another person in the early modern period, a Jewish man who um, was recognized by, by, by certain followers as the Messiah. So there have been other folks who've been very compelling figures, who've gathered devoted followers, sometimes willing to die for folks, um, and have made incredible claims about themselves. So I'd say those are the similarities. Uh, as Greg and I were working on some of the history of these movements and people, however, Uh, we found some really pretty significant differences between Jesus and other folks as well. I'll just mention a few of them. Um, And and Greg, you got into this when you talked about Jesus' particular cultural context. Right. Right? Jesus lived in this really interesting period of of first century Judaism between two um, important moments of Jewish history, of the Maccabean Revolt, about 100-plus years before Jesus, and then the fall of the temple, 70 AD. In that period of time, historians tell us that this was the most ruthlessly monotheistic period uh, of ancient Judaism. Um, That they were resistant to the the Greco-Roman pagan religions around them that uh, had this idea uh, that that a god and a man could be the same person. And so Jesus' historical context was very um, uninviting to that idea. What's interesting about all these other people is they all come after Jesus. And in fact, in the case of David Koresh, who does seem to have suggested he thought he was Jesus in some way, it's the very fact that Jesus was a God man, claimed to be, and his early followers believed it, that sets up a later context like America and, you know, in the 1990s for this to be a plausible idea. Like, hey, he's saying what Jesus said. It's just that Jesus had no one before him or in his culture where that would have made any sense. In fact, it would have been blasphemy. So very different historical context. I think another thing would be, well, the reported moral character of these people. Greg touched on this. Uh, Both Jim Jones and David Koresh were reported to have some sexual shenanigans going on amongst their followers. That was this one example of them using their power over people that they should have been serving and loving. Mm -hmm. Jesus was known as the person who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. So there's a real moral difference here. But uh, it seems to me that the biggest difference uh, is that David Koresh and Jim Jones, when those folks died, their movement essentially died with them. Jesus's expanded exponentially after his death. What's the difference? And I think, Greg, you mentioned this. Jesus' followers said they experienced him alive from the dead, right, right. resurrected. No one ever saw David Cress or Jim Jones again, and, and that movement died. I think you're right. It's the resurrection that objectively anchors this in history. That's, that's why historians like N.T. Wright or even E.P. Sanders, who's generally a, a pretty liberal guy, says it seems that something happened to Jesus. That's the only way to explain something. this movement. Yeah.
0: Well, can you explain the skeptical brother... Becoming a convert, because yeah, you'd exactly. th- be the last convert in the world. You know, I, yep. it's uh, uh. So yeah, yeah. I, I I I think you could sum it up by saying that there in all these other cases. There is an adequate sociological yeah. explanation once you get at all the facts. And with Jim Jones, one of the things that he began to do it, towards the end of his ministry was deceiving people by having art, artificial miracles, uh-huh. and he, was just shenanigans to try to get the you know the faithful in. And so yeah, he got some 900 people to drink the Kool-Aid, and you know, but but he d- used deception to get it. Yeah. Um, there's no indication that Jesus had anything like that kind of character, and and, and I, I just don't think there's any adequate. At least we haven't found any adequate. A sociological explanation that would plausibly account for why this band of disciples start making these claims about Jesus uh, that go against everything that their culture says. And the other difference is that you know, they tell us why they believe. Yeah. The gospels, the epistles, are, they tell us it's because of this, the character he had and the claims that he made and the authority that he taught with and the love that he embodied, but also the miracles that he did and especially that, the fact that he rose from the dead. Yeah. Uh, that needs to be explained, and, and the only explanation I have for it that I think is adequate is that it actually happened.
2: There's well, what, what makes this even more stunning is the very records that tell us about this tell us that on the last night of, of Jesus' life, the 12 pers- people he poured three years of his life into one of them denied him, one of them betrayed him, and the other 10 split. Yeah. <laughs> like, these people had already abandoned him, and then this thing they call the resurrection completely shifts yep. their faith in him. I mean, th- th- that's, that's, I think, an objective piece of history we've got to deal with, yeah. Amen.
1: I love the theological term that you both brought up, shenanigans. I think that's <laughs> going to be really helpful. It comes from the Hebrew <laughs> yes. shenanogan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, we've gotten actually several, I think just based on this beginning conversation, several questions that I feel like we need to, we've gotten this one question in several times that I feel like we need to address. And it's just that uh, other religions have resurrection stories. So what about them?
0: They're wrong. The professors. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm trying to think. I would challenge the premise of that question: uh, that do they have resurrection stories? Yeah. But if they do, I mean, you, you realize that there's a difference between a resuscitation yeah. story, where a person comes back to life, and a resurrection, where they don't just come back to life; they come back with a new form of life, uh, a transformed life, it's it's a, a transfigured life. The physics of, operate differently. Jesus is able to walk through walls and things like that. So I would question the parallel there. Yeah. But you do have, uh, maybe this is what the questions refer to, because um, there's been a lot made of this uh, lately, that that uh, you have in, in, like, certain Egyptian uh, stories, stories of, of, of dying and, and rising gods. Uh, and, and so some have thought, well, maybe there's parallels there. Um, if, if you look at those stories, I mean, they're all once upon a time, you know, long, long ago, far, far away kind of thing. They're not like Jesus of Nazareth, who hung out with us. You guys all know him, and da-da-da. There's nothing parallel to that. But those, those uh, death and, the dying and rising of these, these different gods, um, they were usually associated with, like, the harvest. They're, 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 the cycle of life is about dying and rising. And this was their way of kind of capturing this. It's like the, the gods are dying and rising. And so you have an adequate explanation just in the kind of seasonal change of, of uh, nature. But C.S. Lewis goes beyond that, and, and, and he said that wherever you find parallels in mythology, whether it's with the resurrection or just with, uh, you know, a, a God coming down to earth or anything of the sort, uh, unlike the Gospels, we don't have any reason to think that anything like that actually happened. In fact, they don't really claim that. It, it, it's, it takes place in a different kind of realm, the mythological realm. But he argued that those are to be expected uh, because uh, if Jesus is the truth— He becomes the the embodiment of everything that's true in mythology. And so these myths are—there is in the human heart an intuition about what the world should be like. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an answer to that, you sort of project it onto the screen of heaven. Like what you anticipate or intuit should be true. And that's what C.S. Lewis thought, that all great mythology is like that. It expresses the kind of the deepest intuition about what should be the case. When Jesus shows up, this this gospel story has the ring of truth to it because our hearts— are conditioned to expect that. He is what we're looking for. So he uh, said that Jesus is myth become history. Here we find the truth to which all good mythology points. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. So as the two of you are researching um, for your legends books, uh, there's a question that um, says... In addition to theological and biblical evidence arguments for the divinity of Jesus, did you guys come across any evidence uh, that was more secular, like bones or DNA or clothes that would help prove Jesus' divinity?
0: Well, if you found the bones of Jesus, that would, cause, <laughs> that that would, would be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, <laughs> that would be a. Oh, he's a- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I
1: mean, maybe the wrong you didn't year to become a Christian, anymore. I guess.
0: It would happen. <laughs> Oh, it, it, if someone could prove that the bones are still in the tomb, which of course they couldn't do, but if they could, well, that would be a, a decisive refutation, I think, of uh, the Christian faith. I think mean, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then we are of all people most miserable. Uh, we're hanging, we're betting everything on that. And so, uh, does
2: that answer your question? <laughs>
1: Wasn't my
0: question.
1: <laughs> you guys are the ones who did the research.
2: Well, so I mean, that, that's what's the interesting point, right? Like, if Jesus' resurrection is historical, then one wouldn't find uh, bones or or DNA that we could, could could match. Now, what about clothing? Well, there is. I mean, interesting case is the shroud of Turin. Um, the Catholic Church has, has um, claimed for for centuries that this is the burial cloth of Jesus. Um, we have a friend, Gary Habermas, who's probably done more work on the resurrection than any other person in, in, our, in, our, in our lifetime. And Gary, a Protestant uh, theologian, has done... The
0: evangelical done at Liberty. Yeah, Liberty University. Um conservative. Uh,
2: deeply believes that there is good evidence for the shroud being authentic. Um, there's been some really interesting uh, studies done on the, the image on the shroud uh, being this fascinating three-dimensional image that would be very difficult, Gary argues, very difficult to forge in the 14th century mm-hmm. when this thing was discovered. And so that might be something worth talking about. I don't hang a lot on that, but it's an interesting uh, case. Uh, what might be more interesting uh, to this point, though, is the absence of, of the evidence you would expect. For example, um, whether you're a Jewish person or a Greco-Roman person in the ancient world, venerating the tomb of a uh, revered religious figure was very, very common. What we don't have is early Christians venerating <coughs> the tomb of Jesus. What they claim is there was no tomb to venerate. He wasn't there. And so it's, the, the lack of what would be expected of someone you deeply cared for who was a religious figure who passed on never happened. They claim there's no, there's no tomb where he lies. So the, there is evidence in that sense. It's sort of negative evidence.
0: Yeah. The other thing I'd add is that the person asked for secular sources. And you have some that, for one thing, I mean, Jesus and his movement was considered a little cult. So it's not the kind of thing that historians would, uh, contemporary historians would take much notice of. But we do have a reference from a historian named Suetonius. Yeah. Uh, and there's this reference to this Christus. And I don't want to get into all the details, but it, it, it seems like this person uh, he bears witness to that there was a Christ and his followers then were causing trouble, which is why they all got kicked out of Rome. Uh, Tacitus talks about how these early Christians were put to death by, um, uh, by Nero in this, the, the most, you know, extreme ways. And what that, what that does is it tells us that already by the 60s, it's only 30 years now since the thing began, uh, the Christian, Christianity had spread throughout the whole Roman Empire to the point where Nero could blame this fire on, on, on the Christians. Um, we've got Josephus who mm-hmm. r- mentions James, the brother of Jesus. So there's little references like that. Um, the other thing is that, that there is, in, we get in the book on this, archaeological evidence that corroborates the Gospels. And that's the, the best you can do, I think, with, with this sort of thing, where the uh, things line up. The way the Gospels say the culture was, especially prior to 70 AD, is the way that they are expressed in, in the Gospels. Details about the kind of boat that Jesus was in, we find corroboration with that. So there's archaeological facts that I think support the, the, the reliability of the Gospels. Mm-hmm.
1: I knew you guys weren't stumped. You,
0: <laughs> we just pretend did. once in a while.
1: <laughs> okay, well, could you address briefly uh, the possibility that Jesus was just lying instead of the fact that he was um, crazy? As we see in this moment, it's possible to have lots of otherwise normal people passionately embrace a lie.
0: That's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm stumped, whatever you want. Well, uh,
1: You're not stumped. So Notice she says
0: briefly, though. Briefly. <laughs> or Mary's going to throw a pin at us.
1: Exactly. I'm trying to save you.
2: <laughs> Thank you. The, 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 yeah, because you know C.S. Lewis had the famous Lord, liar, or lunatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Greg kind of f- focused on the Lord or, or lunatic dimensions. But there was the liar possibility. And the liar possibility, you know, someone's lying here, could either attach to Jesus or it could attach to his followers, right? Both of those arguments have been made in history. The challenge there is one has to, to propose a plausible historical scenario for why either Jesus or his followers would lie about this. Um, typically, uh, when one is a, a charlatan, you know, a religious fabricator in order to manipulate people, it's to get something personally. It's either to get uh, money or to get power over people, right? And the problem Sex. Sex, right? Shenanigans. <laughs> it's always in there. Sh- shenanigans, yes. That shenanigans. Theological the term we have been using. Um, it's interesting that very few critics of Christianity have ever claimed Jesus was lying. Yeah. I mean, even the most uh, skeptical, atheistic critics. I, I'm trying to think of one who's claimed that Jesus was lying about all this. Now, there are people, in fact, honestly, the, the father of what we call the quest for the historical Jesus, uh, Hermann Romero, uh, uh, late 1700s German, he claimed not that Jesus was lying, but that after Jesus died, his disciples lied and, and made up this whole story. And his, his idea was, well, they thought that Jesus was going to give them the kingdom and they would be rich and famous, and he ends up dying, and so they create a myth about his resurrection. And he says, so they could, like, get the riches they were looking for in the glory. The problem with that is, one, I'm trying to think of, I think of two modern-day scholars who agree with that, and everyone else says, that just doesn't fit the historical evidence. Nope. So there's that problem. But the other problem with this is, historically, the disciples experienced the precise opposite of that. There's no evidence that this movement was drawing much money. Uh, and what it did lead them to was not glory, but reportedly 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. So it's hard to see what they got out of this if they were telling a lie. One might think, if this was a big lie, Peter, when he's about to get crucified upside down for it, might say, I was just joking. (laughs) It didn't pan out the way... He didn't. He allowed himself to be crucified upside down according to the tradition. That's, I think, good evidence. It's not a lie. And they would
0: have known this. In fact... the Gospels themselves promise you that following me is going to you gotta be willing to lay down your life. Because if you go out into this context and you're preaching that this fellow contemporary of ours was the embodiment of Yahweh, uh, you're going to take a lot of people off. That's blasphemy. Yeah. And they, they knew at the very least they'd be ostracized from the, their community. They were kicked out of the synagogue. Nothing positive from an earthly point of view happened to them. And they would know that. That's what makes their, their willingness to die for their faith so, so praiseworthy. But no one dies for a lie. It, it just doesn't know. It, you die if you think someone's really the truth. And maybe you're deceived, but, but the idea that, you, that you're doing it intentionally is just does not yeah. compute.
1: Thank you, guys. So everything that we know about Jesus, we, we primarily have learned from Scripture. But Dr. Greg Boyd, you recently wrote a book that points out some possible errors in Scripture. And so how are we to know what to believe about Jesus.
0: That was, recently, that was a year ago. I've changed my mind. Oh,
1: my gosh. It's time to publicly
0: recant. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I, I saw this quote the other, yesterday, actually. Uh, While I've changed my mind many times, I still stand fast that I'm always right. All right. <laughs> All right so
1: You heard it here, folks.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. So, so <laughs> that the, 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 the book's seen. called Inspired Imperfection. Yes. How the, uh, what's the subtitle? How the errors <laughs> of the Bible uh, or whatever, the imperfections contribute to our understanding of divine authority. And I can't get into the whole thesis of that. But see, here's the thing. Um, I, the reason I believe the Bible's inspired is because I first believe in Jesus. A lot of times people think, well, you believe in Jesus because the Bible tells you that. Um, I, I, that is a shaky foundation, I think. Um, uh, the disciples, they first believed in Jesus, and then they found him in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, but they didn't you know, believe in him because they, he first was in the, in the Old Testament. So, so I encourage people, I believe in Jesus— primarily for historical reasons. I think the, the historical evidence, in some of the cases I just laid out here this morning, I can't explain it any other way. I just think it's true. And, and so as you look at the Gospels, not as inspired documents, but rather as just documents that were written in the first century. We can talk about dating, you know, with the dating, whatever. But even if you go to the liberal dating, um, just submitting these documents to the same kind of criteria you'd submit any other ancient documents to, they—, they, they they demonstrate that they're reliable. They pass all the criteria that you'd ever ask of an ancient document to verify whether it's trustworthy or not. It doesn't matter if there's a few errors in it or they don't agree 100%. That's usually the case in history when anytime you have several people witnessing the same event, there's some discrepancies. Those are completely irrelevant to the general reliability of these documents. For example, I'll just give one example. One criteria that is always used is if a document is... Is uh, purports to be telling a history, uh, and yet it includes facts that are counterproductive to its point, that, that would, you'd think they'd leave out. That is a, one evidence that this person's telling the truth because they would have no reason to make this up. So when, you know, Jesus Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's the kind of thing you wouldn't think would be in a document if they're trying to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's just, it's kind of, or women showing up at the tomb. Yeah. Uh, and the men are scared, tucked away. Well, in that culture, women were not considered credible at all. So you wouldn't make that kind of story up, uh, or, or 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 the fact that James and, and Mary didn't believe in Jesus during his his, his earthly ministry. That's that's kind of embarrassing. He got to explain that. And that's the kind of thing you take out if you're writing propaganda or trying to promote a myth or, or whatever. Or if it was a legend. Legends don't usually include things that count against them. So that's just one example of, of why I think the Gospels are reliable. It doesn't bother me at all that there's some discrepancies there. It's uh, the kind of thing I'd expect.
1: I really appreciate that you said you believe in Jesus, therefore you, you value and believe in the Scripture instead of vice versa. I've had so many people in my life where that was— because they could verse. focus on Jesus, that, that helped them because when they were focusing on Scripture first, it, was almost, it almost caused them to lose their faith. Well, yeah, so I just think that's so powerful. So thank you for raising one that. Of the, point. The, one of
0: the weakest links, I think, in contemporary, especially evangelicalism, is that they have this idea that the Bible's a foundation uh, uh, for why they believe. And say, so I believe it's the foundation for what we believe, but it shouldn't be for why we believe. Mm-hmm. But if you make the whole Bible a foundation for why you believe, and then you declare the Bible's inerrant, Well now, one error in the Bible and your whole faith comes crumbling down. That's why I wrote the book, uh, Inspired Imperfection.
1: I'm glad you did. (laughs) No recanting. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Paul, this one's a good one for you. The History Channel had a show about all the ancient gospels that aren't in our Bible. And some of them say that Jesus really wasn't God. So why do we ignore those gospels in the church? And who decided which gospels went into Mm. our Bible?
2: Good questions. Yeah, so um, other ancient gospels, uh, and there are right. I mean, you can go on, uh, jump on Amazon. I think the book's called "The Complete Gospels." Yeah, uh, and it's like twenty-two different different ancient texts that are our uh, four gospels are in there, but there's eighteen others that uh, talk about Jesus. Ancient ancient texts. Some of the more famous ones: um, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Mary. There's um, some infancy gospels, the infancy gospel of Thomas, infancy gospel of James, talk about Jesus's early life. Um, why aren't they in our Bibles? Great question. And how, how did the four that we have get in our Bibles? Um, I'd say t- two things about these other gospels, and then I'll say a quick word about why the four are in our Bibles. Um, these other gospels, the other 18 or so gospels, um, here's the differences between them and the four gospels we have in our Bibles. One uh, all the other gospels are written at least 100 years, if not more, after Jesus. So, second century or third century uh, onward. Um, our gospels, uh, e- except for a uh, very few scholars, I can only think of one, Bob Price, who puts our gospels in the second century. Virtually every other scholar agrees our four gospels were written in the first century, in Jesus' century. And a century's difference is really important. Because if you have a century of difference, you've lost all eyewitness connection for these other Gospels, whereas our four Gospels have eyewitness connection. Um, The second thing is the content of our Gospels versus uh, most of these other other extra-canonical Gospels. Our Gospels are clearly what you'd call, uh, have a Jewish worldview to them. They are either the written, like Matthew, very clearly a Jewish gospel, or within the orbit of, of, of first century Judaism. The other gospels we're talking about, Thomas, Mary, Philip, are clearly what's called Gnostic gospels. Gnosticism, I think, a uh, simple definition, sort of a mixture of, of Jewish Christian thought with Plato, kind of Greco Roman philosophy. Uh, and so this is one of the main reasons why those other gospels tend not to want to say that Jesus was a God-man. Because in Gnosticism, there's a uh, God is seen as spirit, which is good, and everything that's material or physical is not good, or even outright evil. Right. And so the idea for a Gnostic thinker uh, would be God would never take on a physical body. That's just nothing God would ever do. It's too evil. Uh, and that reflects the sort of Platonic, uh, Greco-Roman view of things. That's not, the, in the Jewish view, creation is good. Physical matter is good. Uh, resurrection is good. And so we could say this, that the, these other Gospels are dated at least a century, if not more than our Gospels, and they have a, <coughs> a worldview, a theology that doesn't fit with, with the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, I think those are big reasons why they're not eventually found in our Gospels. But, but to the question, how did our four Gospels end up? I know a lot of people today have kind of have this idea, Constantine yeah. uh, got a group of folks in 325 Council in Nicaea to vote them, our Gospels into the, into the Bible. Um, I'm, I think Dan Brown in his book, Da Vinci Code, had a lot to do with that idea these days. Uh, There's no indication. We we have records of what happened in the Council of Nicaea. They weren't voting books in or out of the Bible. Nothing to do with it. Um, Rather, we know that by the second century, so uh, two centuries before Constantine's having his Nicaean Council, 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament were already broadly agreed by all the Mediterranean churches as being inspired texts. Mm There was a few at the end of our New Testament that were sort of debated, but all four Gospels were in the 21 that everyone agreed on. Uh, And so we have very early, we're talking people like Papias, Irenaeus, uh, the Muratorium Canon, all second century documents that let us know our four Gospels from very early were recognized as authentic Gospels of Jesus none of these other 18 were in those lists. So I think it's pretty impressive evidence there.
0: Well said.
1: Thank you. Honestly, we're out of time, but there's this this final question I just have to ask. So stick with us for this final one. Um, There are some passages in Matthew 7 that talk about, uh, it's that picture of Judgment Day when people come before the Lord and, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so that's caused some fear for people who believe that they um, have accepted Jesus, follow him, but they still deal with sin in their life. And so how can they be certain, how can they be sure uh, that they won't hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you? Greg, can yeah, you yeah. Um, help people with that? Well, point? you know,
0: there are some advantages to having this lockdown. One is that we're not quite as constrained for time as we used to be. So uh, <laughs> God bringing good out of evil. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: This will be the final question. Okay, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll just say this, that... Um, you know, it's important to take every particular... <laughs> Mary just threw a pet at me. You're lucky that didn't go in my eye, all right? <laughs> Though I wouldn't be allowed to sue you because the Bible Matthew forbids that. Matthew 7. So, so Matthew 7. Um, <laughs> my meds are wearing off early. Greg forgot to take his meds today. <laughs> oh, as great. It comes full circle. <laughs> um, so... Here's the thing, you've got to take every particular teaching of Jesus in the context of his whole ministry. And so under what circumstances might Jesus say this? Uh, given, you know, on the cross he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. I mean, given the whole texture of his teaching and his acceptance of prostitutes and tax collectors and, and all that, saying the prostitutes will go into heaven before you Pharisees who are so religious and meticulous, whatever, he can't be saying that, uh, yeah, you guys who, who professed me and who did these miracles, you thought in my name, that you just weren't good enough or you didn't love me enough, or you didn't measure up, you didn't cut the bar. There's something, there must be something more going on than that because in other contexts, he's got nothing but grace towards people. So I think these are folks that are, are, are charlatans, the ones who are uh, yeah, in, in his name going out and, and doing things, but for their own benefit, uh, like we talked about earlier, the Jim Jones type. Mm. And and uh, um, yeah, so, so here's, if, if your heart is, is towards Abba Father, um, that, that's your aspiration. Then, then you're a child of God, and you need to see yourself as a child of God. And and so, if you would never reject your children because they were, they weren't didn't get all A's on their tests, or they didn't behave exactly perfect, or maybe they even did some really nasty stuff, but. A good parent would never reject them. You'd try to love them into wholeness. Well, if that's what we would do to our kids who misbehave, how much more will Abba Father do that to us? He, it's his grace that leads to repentance. Uh, and so don't, there shouldn't be any worry about that, uh, that God's going to reject you because you don't measure up. Um, he's talking about a totally different— Now, if you're out there and, and, and you're, you know, making a good buck by pulling off some tricks and doing it in Jesus' name and getting a crowd there to get all riled up, whatever, well, then that— be warned, <laughs> uh, but for the re- for average person, that should not be a, a worry at all yeah
1: thank you. That was beautiful. We can trust in his love and his grace Amen. <laughs> (laughs) Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for your questions. Clearly we couldn't get to them all, but we do appreciate them. If you need prayer, please hop on over to the website so you can join in with a prayer partner in our Zoom prayer rooms. You can also check out the MuseCast on Tuesday afternoon. Well, we will continue this conversation with Dan and Oshita and myself. Uh, And then also, if you want to discuss this sermon or some of the the Q&A time, with others, we have gathering groups, which we discuss this sermon every week, and it is really great. So thank you all for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day. Be blessed, everyone.
0: Peace out.